This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice. www.onf.ie Hello, good morning and welcome to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business on KCLR, brought to you in association with O'Neill Foley Accountants. I hope it's been a positive and productive week for you. It was one, of course, which brought us Storm Brendan, and for the first time since 1918, an election date set for a Saturday, that's Saturday, uh, February the 8th, which is, I think, three or four short weeks away. Well, there's no election coverage for the next half hour, but we'll be covering what the parties are saying about business over the coming weeks here on The Bottom Line. Do stay tuned. But today, later in the programme, I'll be talking to Stephen Dargan, Chief Executive of Wake Up, about the power of positivity and happiness in the workplace and the impact it can have. But first, to the story of a woman who, up until a few years ago was just another, as she describes it, working Joe, starting her trip to work each day at a yawn-inducing 5.30am until one morning, realising that the slog wasn't really what she'd been dreaming about. She decided to give up the job, start her own online business and focus on what is really important in life. Sounds great, doesn't it? Hello, Kel Gallivan, how are you, aka Mrs Smart Money? Hello, John. Good morning. How are you? Very well. Tell us about your road to Damascus moment. I think it was, I hadn't originally set out um, to start a business of my own at all. Um, I'd had a career for 16 years that I, I, I genuinely enjoyed. But I found that um, I had two young kids. And I just found with the commute and the hours away, they were just growing up before my eyes and I, I wasn't around to see it. So I sat down with my husband and I said, look, um, what can we do about this? You know, because two incomes coming into the house and going down to one would have been a very big step. So we worked out the maths and we thought, this will be a bit tight, but we'll, we'll have a go. And so I handed in my notice and I walked away from my career. And uh, I said, right, if I'm going to do this and cut our income down, I was going to do my level best to make sure that the money that was coming into the house was going to really work hard for us. So I started what was called the No Spend Year. <laughs> no Spend Year. Um, it was basically a year where we cut back on everything. So, and myself particularly. So I didn't drink alcohol for the year. We didn't have takeaways. We started planning our, our meal budgets and our, our groceries and that kind of thing. I didn't buy any new clothes. Um, I didn't dye my hair, which is a big change for me. Um, and then at, by the end of the year... Um, all these really good habits had kicked in and I'd learned so much that we ended up cutting our outgoings by 27,500 euro. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it shocks even me and I kind of went, wow, there's, there's, there's something here to this. So I had a blog and I had been chronicling um, my time with it and I realized there's a few different things that I was doing repeatedly that just in small ways saved all this money and it just built up over time. So what I started doing, um, a couple of things happened. One was I teamed up with Orban Pest, and there's actually a book on the North Bend year coming out in in a couple of months. So people who want to kind of follow along or learn from it, they'll have that option. But I've also started up a coaching business. So for anybody who is struggling with their income and they're trying to figure out, well, where's all the money going? And they find that they're just kind of, the money just disappearing on them even though they know they have enough coming in but it just doesn't seem to stretch at the end of the month Mm. so I I do 
Yeah, I suppose from a business point of view, one of the most renowned cost cutters would have been Michael O'Leary in in Ryanair, uh, and that seemed to be built, you know, for many years on, on the edge of it, kind of a, have a nasty edge, and it was kind of bashing things, and you can't charge your phone in the office and all that. Are you a kind of Michael O'Leary in a domestic sense? I don't think I am. Um, Does it have to be nasty to save money? That's what I'm wondering about. Can you retain quality and friendliness and all that kind of... Personally, I think when you take the focus off money and figure out what actually makes you happy, things can be um, way more fun. So I don't believe in being frugal for frugal's sake. Mm. I believe in spending money where you're going to get value from it. So, for example, like I wanted to spend more time with my kids. And one of the things that we started doing throughout the, the no-spend year was having no-spend days. And what we do is we sit down in the morning, and particularly at weekends when you know you kind of want to entertain the kids and do something fun with them, we said, right, what can we do today that, you know, we're, we're not going to spend money, but we're going to have fun. And the kids would come up with all these crazy ideas, and we'd end up going, we'd get a camping stove with a few sausages and a, a sliced pan, or we'd go to different castles and parks and... And when you go online, like Facebook and things, there's all sorts of free events that you can go to. And we'd spend the day just out and about doing loads of really fun things. We saw parts of Ireland we would never have seen before. Um, it, most of us didn't actually cost us anything, but we have never had so much fun as a family. Mm. So and, it's and, how you look at it. Yeah, and I suppose what's unusual about you is you made the, the lifestyle change first, and now you're parlaying it into a business. This has grown into a book deal, a website and the coaching business. Are you enjoying it? And how's the business end of it going? I absolutely love it. I have never been so happy in my entire life. Um, I get I, I get the best of both worlds. I get to work from home, and I get to collect my kids from school at the same time. It's, 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 it's the dream set up for me. Um, and then to get a book deal on top of it, I I, I never thought I would be considered any form of author, but it's it's, it's it seems to be working out. I've caught their attention. They liked the way I wrote. And I love the story of changing from being very materialistic to just focusing on what makes you happy. Mm. And that's what a lot of it was. And with regards to coaching, at the moment, most of my clients are coming to me and I'm, I'm quite full and booked up at the moment. And the feedback and testimonials are, are really quite positive because it's getting people to think in a different way about their money and focusing not necessarily on the stress of, oh, I have no money, but, well, what can I do to make it better? And, you know, what, what genuinely makes me happy that I can focus on? And it's just changing that mindset, and I love that. And was it a big leap from doing it for your own family to deciding to change it, to, to share it, and then to, to start bringing it public? Um, yes, I suppose it was, because, when, you know, you said you could do something really well at home, but when, when you're bringing it into somebody else's life, you have to make allowances that people's eyes aren't going to be the same as yours. It has to have flexibility. It has to have options in it. And it just means I have to think harder and work harder, which is totally fine by me. Mm. Okay, Kel. So if people are interested in, in following you or finding out more about uh, Mrs. Smart Money, you mentioned a book is coming out in the summer, but how can people find out about you in the meantime? Oh, absolutely. So I have a website, www.mrsmartmoney.com, where you can contact me there and all my blog posts are up there and you'll get a good idea of, of what I'm like and what I'm about. And if you have any questions, you can contact me through that. Another place I actually do spend a lot of my time 
And I spend particularly with the grocery budget, we cut our grocery budget in half last year, and I'm actually teaching people for free how to manage their grocery budget and bring it down to suit their family so they find that balance between um, how much their shopping is costing and not wasting food. So that will be on Instagram, and the handle for that is Mrs. Smart Money HQ. Excellent. Well, listen, Kel, pleasure talking to you, and we look forward to talking to you again around the publication of your book, if not before. That's Kel Gallivan, a.k.a. Mrs. Smart Money, and you can check out mrssmartmoney.com. Now, at the start of the programme, I spoke of the power of positivity and happiness in the workplace. Carlo-based Stephen Dargan is the CEO of Wake Up, a company who focus on creating happier environments in the workplace, schools, towns, and in people in general. General. He's worked with many different organisations and has created various different happiness programmes, as well as the Happy Workplace Ireland Conference 2020, which is aimed at leaders and it's coming up in April. I met Stephen recently and I started by asking him what he does with companies. Well, at present, what we do is we have a four day programme that we work with over companies, with companies over a four month period. Um, where we transform the leadership within the organisation, where we get the leadership to look at all the research that we've looked into, the best practices when it comes to this, and how they can actually... We we come from the idea that um, people work best when they feel good about themselves. So really great leaders make people feel good about themselves. And if you can do that in your organisation, you're onto a winner from the start. And how do you do that? Well, first of all, we we need to give the tools. To actually, the very first day of the program. So we, we work over four months with the organisation. We go in one day a month, and then we give them um, the skills to be able to use that within their team for, for that month. We come back the following month, we see how they've got on with that, and then, then we give them more tools for that. But one of the first things we do on, on uh, week number one or day number one is that we sit down and we look at what's their concept of leadership. We actually have a little campfire. We actually we get them to sit down and we get them to think about somebody in their life that they uh, saw as a great leader in their past and it could have been through work or through whatever something that happened at school or whatever it might be and we get them to express that and then we get them to look at the different uh, attributes that person had one of the things that we know is that um, one of the things that we talk about is that we, we get people to hire for attitude and train for skill so there's three areas there's attitude there's skill and there's knowledge and somehow we think that knowledge is always the best thing and it's not. When you think about it, if I was to do an interview process here today um, and we had, uh, say, someone like um, Gareth Bale, I'm just going to pick him, the Welsh uh, uh, football player, plays for Real Madrid, fantastic football player. And then we have, say, someone like, uh, let's use a football commentator. Let's use John Motson. You've, you've heard of him, yeah. the, the, the English commentator. Now, John Motson has got about 40, 50 years experience in the world of football. Gareth Bale, less so but I'm an amazing football player and you certainly want him on your team. If you're doing the interview process and sat the two of them down, who would you give the job to if we did a standard interview? And the truth is, you'd probably give it to John Motson because John Motson would have all this information about the last 50 years of football and know everything about it. Gareth mightn't be a great communicator on that. So even though John has the knowledge, really when you get John Motson onto the pitch, are you going to get the same amount of skill as Gareth? You certainly aren't. And maybe John's attitude when it comes to football and getting knocked over first, he's just going to give up completely. So we know that if you hire people with really, really good attitude, you can train them in those skills. And knowledge is is a lot less than uh, we used to think of before because we used to just put people into roles simply because of their knowledge. Mm. And you talked about uh, the campfire sitting down and talking yeah. about people, about what they admire in, in leaders. Mm. What are the key attributes that people admire and that actually works well for leaders? For leaders, we've discovered this. There's a, there was 
Google had done this a number of years ago, had around about 2003 decided because they had, I think it was a, about 180 Google engineers worked for the organization back then. It was, it was in its early infancy, it was at that time. And they just, engineers hate management. They hate to be told what to do and they hate rules and regulations and all that kind of stuff. So in 2003, Google decided to get rid of management within the organization thought this would be a really good thing to do. So they got rid of management. Um, so those engineers didn't have a manager. It was only one person that they had to, uh, had to uh, report to. And after about six weeks, they discovered that the one person that they had to report to got completely snowed under because there was internal fighting between the engineers. There was form filling that had to be filled out. And then they realized after a short while that they couldn't do without the management within the organization. So in about 2008, they sat down and they said, well, we're still having problems with the concept of management. Um, We want to know how can we create the best managers that are the best leaders within an organization that we possibly can because the general rule that we have in organizations is that we usually promote the people that have been with the company the longest or he might be the best engineer within the organization best programmer or he might be the best mechanic or whatever it might be and we go Dave you've been a brilliant mechanic over the last seven years so great we're going to promote you into leadership so suddenly Dave is sitting in an office he's filling out forms and files he's uh, coordinating people and he's not fixing engines anymore and he completely gets demotivated quite rapidly from that. The same with engineers. So what they did is they just decided to, to find out how they could find out what the best components of leadership was. And they did thousands of hours of interviews, uh, lots of analysis on this. And they discovered that there was, I think it was called Project Oxygen, where they found eight attributes of a really good leader. And the three best attributes um, of a leader was the first was to, um, to be a good coach. So coaching is the most important thing, and that's what they do within an organization like um, uh, Google, and that's what we teach the leaders to do, to stand back, to find the answers with the people within the organization, um, and to, to, to allow them to come up with that. There's almost like a seeking system being triggered inside of themselves. The other one is, is also not to micromanage. People don't want to be micromanaged, and you empower people then rather than micromanage within your Yeah, earlier on you mentioned about, um, before we came on air, you mentioned something that I found pretty interesting, which was the, the, the figures around where people set their own targets, that it can actually be more ambitious than centrally set targets. That's yeah. an interesting one. There's a, really, there's, a, there's a really interesting book. There's a guy called Daniel M. Cable, and he wrote the, about the neuroscience of, of, of the workplace. And we all have this internal seeking system. We all, we're all motivated, but we just don't have that motivation triggered. And we get it triggered by certain things. We get it triggered by uh, cause and effect of trying to exploring new things. Like when you think it, most people at the weekends, uh, most of the people that work for any organization at the weekends, they do things like they coach football teams or they, um, they learn new languages or they work out how to play a particular song on guitar. Now, nobody ever gets paid for that. But f- wh- wh- why is it that they do that when nobody's adding a financial reward to it? It's because something internalized feels good when they sit down with the guitar and they work out new chords or when they see the kids on the, on the, on the pitch at the weekend and, and what they're getting out of it. And that's called our seeking system. And our seeking system is also triggered by things like when we empower people to have a certain amount of control or autonomy in the workplace. And that happens. So, so the surprising effect of when we... S- allow people to set their own targets within the workplace, people will generally set higher targets than that would have been set by the management and they are more likely to achieve them because there is an internal, intrinsic connection to 
um, getting that target achieved. Now, uh, when you're talking about Google and large multinationals, a lot of people running smaller businesses in this area will kind of throw their eyes up to heaven and say, well, easy for them. They're kind of monopolistic. They're Mm -hmm. multinational. They've got turnover in the billions they can afford that luxury but does this approach work in smaller companies yeah yeah really well with smaller companies because it doesn't cost a lot of money to do this it isn't an expensive thing to make your people feel good and people always ask me well how do i know what makes my uh, people in my organization make uh, feel happier and the simple thing is just ask them and most people within organizations haven't done that. If you sat your people down um, in a boardroom or in a training room, whatever it wants, and just said, listen, what do we need to do to make things happier? You'll probably find it's quite um, uh, it's quite easy. There are small little things that really matter. For some people, it might be the fact that the light bulb's been broken for six months or the kettle doesn't work or the whatever it might be. Really interesting one was um, when I first started on my journey of, of listening to what really mattered in management. I worked for a very old organisation that had a really old culture of where, of where it worked. And I was studying management and industrial relations at the time. And I read a book on a guy called um, Ricardo Semler. And Ricardo has a, a company called Semco. And Semco are based in Sao Paulo in Brazil. He took it over from his father at the age of 21. And one of the things that Ricardo began to notice in the organisation was there was things that they were doing that just didn't make sense to him. So one day he's at the clocking machine in, in, in the company, in the factory. And he saw the staff, it's like a bottleneck. People have to uh, uh, queue up to clock in and queue up to clock out. And he said, that doesn't make sense. These, these are adults. They, they, they've got their own lives. They've created uh, families and they've got mortgages and they do all these adult things. And then we bring them to work and we expect them to be quite, quite teenagers. So he said, um, he got the unions together and uh, he said to the unions, he says, uh, we're thinking of, actually, we're not just thinking of, we're, we're going to get rid of the, um, the clocking machines. And he went, whoa, 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 what, what do you mean? He says, well, we don't want people to clock in every day. I think the teams will be able to self-regulate this. And they go, hang on a second here. We need to go off and think about this. And the unions came back and they said, listen, we don't know if we're happy about this, getting rid of the clocking system, because you know in uh, Brazilian law there's a 10-minute um, grace for every worker uh, at the clocking machine, and we're afraid they might lose this. And he says, you'll never need to worry about that again because it's a self-regulated system. Um, so the union said, oh, we're not sure. We think there might be something behind this. Uh, so we, we really need to think about this. And he said, listen, why don't we, where, where's your head office? And the union said, our head office? He says, yeah, where's your head office? And he said, well, it's downtown Sao Paulo. And he says, let's meet there. He says, what do you mean meet there? He said, meet in your office. And he said, well, no one's ever been to our office to meet us. And he says, well, I want to meet you there. And that's where he started. And that, and now there's no clocking uh, done in that organization at all, as well as many other rules. And he was the first person that I'd read about. That book, Maverick, is incredible. And anybody involved in any organization should read it to see how a guy changed an organization by thinking completely differently. And when I first saw that, I said, we don't need to work the way we do even though we think we need to work the way we do, because we get stuck in these old practices. And he began to do that, this idea of calling a staff in and says, what do we need to get rid of? That that doesn't make sense. And there's so much of what we do in work that doesn't make sense. There's probably people listening to this at the moment of time, and they're out there and they're going, what I do with one of the things that we do with organizations is we get them to sit down and we go, how could you create, think about what you would need to do to create the worst workplace ever? What what, what What would that feel like? What would that look like? What would be in, in place? And people might say stuff, oh God, you'd micromanage the staff all the time, um, maybe nothing, no canteen, um, no flexibility, no time off from work as well, you know, really strict place, everybody's rude, bullying, all this kind of stuff. So I get them to think of all the things that would come, that, that, that would 
make up this the worst workplace in the world. And I get them to list them all these different types of things down. And then I get them to think about um, what you could do to contribute to this. And they write all this down. And then I get them to think about it. It's a thing called TRIZ. It's, it's actually a Russian thing. And I get them then to, to work out what of these things that you've just listed are you presently doing in your workforce. And it's a real eye-opener for people because they discover we're doing many things that just don't make sense, that are making things harder for us and making things worse for us. The clocking system is, is one example. I know that's beginning to change in workplaces, but yeah. Yeah, so if you if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you mm. always got. So look, thank you very much, Stephen. That's Stephen Dargan, Chief Executive of Wake Up. Stephen, if people like what you're saying and would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, they can get through, contact through to uh, Wake Up. Uh, and they see my website as well and there's also Happy Workplaces Ireland as well which is a separate website I have because we have a conference every year on how we can actually transform the workplace and we have that on the 23rd of April um, in the Gibson Hotel tickets are available for that and we spoke about this earlier but I'm really interested because we have a, a number of speakers that we have available for this but I'm really interested in getting um, an indigenous Irish company that is doing something that is actually transforming the workplace because most of the speakers that I get this is the fourth year of doing this are companies from Europe or from England that are quite progressive on this but I'd love to get an Irish company um, that have a story to tell me about what they're doing well in the workplace and they want to share it with other people so there you have it folks if you are that company do get in touch that's with Stephen Dargan who's the Chief Executive of Waco The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell brought to you in association with O'Neill Foley Accountants our website onf.ie shows the full range of services we provide to businesses large and small Next Thursday the 23rd of January sees the race that stops a county the Goffs Tiestes chase take place at Goran Park and to tell us more about it and indeed the business that is horse racing in Ireland and in Carlock Kilkenny I'm joined on the line by Eddie Scally general manager at Goran Park and of course a f- familiar voice on KCLR Eddie busy man these days yeah John everything's going uh, great at the moment I suppose this is our, our our big month really January and just the start of February we've our two biggest fixtures of the year as you say Tiestes on Thursday so um, really exciting time it's it's a time uh, I love getting the plough bed in the morning it's it's just very exciting for us all out here Yeah now race horse racing renowned as a sport but a huge business and I, I was amazed frankly to see the 2,400 jobs in Carlow Kilkenny uh, linked to the racing industry Yeah this is it you know um, I suppose when I, when I started working in racing myself it, it kind of stunned me at how far we branch out um, it was told to me on numerous occasions by Brian Cavanagh there the Chief Executive of Horse Racing in Ireland that we're an industry as opposed to a sport. Um, and when you see figures like the, the number of people employed, particularly in rural areas like Carlow to Kenny, um, it's, a, it's a huge, huge industry. Um, and it's an industry that's, that's really embedded in, in our region in Carlow to Kenny. I mean, as you, as you rightly point out, there's, there's well over 2,000 people employed in this business. And what are the range of support services that you, uh, you bring and that create that employment? I suppose when you look at it, you, you kind of take it at the brass tactics side of it. You have the breeding side of the business where you have the likes of, say, Bally Lynch, Bally Haynes, Studs, um, uh, Rossonara Stud, Burgett Stud, uh, just to name a few. Like all of these stud farms are starting at the beginning, so they're creating the, the horses there. So each of them farms would have a huge amount of staff employed in there. Um, to bring that that side on and then once you come from the breeding sheds you're bringing them into the racing industry side of it itself and again in the southeast we have Jim Bulger Joseph O'Brien Willie Mags uh, Tony Mullins all there Tom Mullins 
Jack Hanlon, uh, again, I'm just passing, just thinking off the top of my head, mm. you probably have 20 trainers in this region as well, all with, you know, with massive employment in their yards. Uh, you've got some of what we call the super yards, the likes of Willie Mullins' yard, which, you know, he would have well over 70 or 80 full-time employees in the yard, and Joseph would be very similar down in Pilltown. Um, I mean, uh, speaking to people in Pilltown, they've said to me that he's bred a new lease of life into that whole place with the amount of people working in the yard. And that's not just, you know, your work riders, your jockeys, but it's your grooms, lads working out in the yards, even people in the administration side of the business. It's, And that's just the direct link to the horse racing side of it. And then you've got the other companies, the likes of Connolly's Red Mills, uh, Gain Feeds, again, all producing the food to provide for these people. And then all the salary people, you know, like Porter Salary, the Red Mill store in Kilkenny. It's it's just, it keeps reaching and reaching out. And mm. that's ever before they get to a racetrack, you know. Yeah, and how's the racing industry going in general? I mean, is it good times for the racing industry? It is. Um, like, prize money has never been bigger. Um, the, the industry itself, the actual number of runners in racing is increasing every year. There was a bit of a lull there. As you can imagine, during recessionary times, there was a bit of a worry that a few of the owners have dropped out of the business but I think over the last five or six years the, the number of owners has increased in racing and uh, the numbers of fixtures which is vital as well have increased um, with the Irish racing as well um, and, and, and right across the board <coughs> the racing industry itself is it, it, it's, uh, it's going very very well the feature fixtures the likes of your Gosta Estes Chase Day at Gorn or your Galway Festival Punchestown Festivals all of them festival meetings are showing great growths in attendances, um, which, which you know, it's, it's, it's a massive contribu- contributor to, to, to the regions. Like you take Gorham Park itself, you know, we really kind of work that the value of Gorham Park races to the, the, the local economy is, is, is in the region of a million or more per annum. And we're only doing that off of 17 fixtures per year here. So you can imagine other tracks like Galway and everything else, they're, they're pumping these into to, to regions that really need that. And your racing product has changed hugely. I mean, the promotion of Toyesta's Day, it's about more than actually the races on the track. There's a huge amount of entertainment built in. You've adapted um, hugely over the years to a change in market, I suppose. Yeah, see, I suppose the customer, our customers are changing. Um, there was a time where people were happy to go and stand and galvanise sheds, uh, you know, just a little bit of cover from rain. I remember my dad saying to me, you know, when he was going racing when he was younger, he was just happy if he wasn't getting soaked. <laughs> uh, nowadays, you know, we've become a much more uh, demanding public uh, and, and, and they want to be a bit more comfortable when they go to the races. The glamour side of it started to come into it. You know, people have always, there's always been a bit of glamour attached to horse racing, but the fashion side of the business has become very, very big. But for us ourselves, we have to see ourselves as entertainment complexes. It's not just racing. Like, you take a race meeting in Gorham Park, like next Thursday's Gospel Yesterday's Chase Day. We have seven races. Each race will last four minutes, roughly. The Tiesta is a bit longer because of the distance. So you're talking about 30 minutes of racing entertainment. But we have a captive audience here for four hours, mm. for 30 minutes of entertainment. Now, if you went to Crow Park to watch an All-Ireland Hurling final, and it was a four-hour seat, and they only played hurling for 30 minutes, you know, there'd be three and a half hours where you'd be saying, what the hell is going on here, you know? Yeah. So for that time, we have to ensure that our customers, when they're here, are being entertained. And, you know, different tracks do different things. Us in Goran Park, we love the, the music side of it, the fair side of it, the food, things like that. That's the push that we put on it. Other tracks go down the side of, of you know, real heavy style events. Uh, some of them do student events. But it's it's always about when the customer comes here that they have an enjoyable experience. And, and, you know, we have to give people what they want. And 
I think it's I think it's working, and I think it's it's the industry is better for these changes that we've made, and we've made it a very glamorous sport to be involved in and to be seen attending. And and a huge uh, asset and a huge facility, Goran Park. But you did mention that seventeen race days in the year, three hundred and sixty-five days in a year. Uh, um, a challenge to you and and the team and the board out in Goran to kind of use that that asset. You've been changing. There's the golf course. You're pushing out into other events as well. Yeah, it's it's. It, I suppose Joe Connolly, our chairman here, was you know he's always been a very strong you know person that pushes business, keep pushing it. You know, sweat the assets as much as you can. With us, we've a beautiful facility. The golf course is, is, is has been there for 15 years now it really married into this area so well and it, 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 I, I personally think that it's, it's it's given the whole area a lift the whole of Gorham Park and the region a, a good lift to have a beautiful golf course here very scenic from that you know with us you know you've 17 fixtures in racing which are all you know the, the, the quietest race day is still a busy day for us it's a hard day on the track they're all with their equal challenges but it's it's the downtime days that we've tried to look at doing different things we brought in the Kilkenny Country Music Festival you know dipping our toe in the water with Young Ireland's GEA Club and uh, we're going into year four of that and it's been very very successful for us and for Young Ireland's GEA Club it's, it's a day I love and um, we brought in the Festival of Speed which is a motor racing event um, we started initially as a two-day event. We grew it uh, over three or four years, and we changed it back that we have it as a, a one-day singular, and it's, 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 it's orientated solely at families to attend. So what we have is the motor racing takes centre stage. So if you're a motor racing fan, you can come and see the cars on the track, and you can do that. But if you're not a motor racing enthusiast, we've so much else going on, like gymnastics, trapeze artists, helicopters, hot air balloons, and crooks. It's just something that people can all come to this huge complex and actually stroll around and enjoy, number one, the scenery here, but number two, you know, just give them what they want, you know, and it's 2020, we've we've already set it in stone that we wanted to do two or three new events to see can we start another one, you know, mm. start the building process of it, because, you know, these things, they're very expensive to put on in the beginning, but once you allow them to grow naturally and it's not something that you're forcing, the public support them and, and, and they're, they're self self-financing and, and very good for the business for us here. Yeah, so finally, Eddie, just tell us what's on the to-do list between now and uh, next Thursday. Busy couple of days, fingers crossed for the weather. This is it, yeah. Um, the weather, the, look, a lot of weather watch would be the main thing for me, I suppose. The one thing I can have no control over is the one thing I'll be watching most. But um, no, it, over the next kind of three or four days, all of the outside units will start arriving in our marquees. We've uh, three or four marquees this year. If you're outdoor, kind of bars, catering facilities, all of that stuff start coming in. Um, you're just touching up on the whole place. The track itself, like we're ready to race today. The hurdles will go out tomorrow. It's um, it's just you know the, the, the small stuff that people will see when they arrive on the day it's just to make the place as beautiful as it can be we have the RTE cameras here again this year which is a lovely touch for Gorham Park it's the only day RTE cover that's a non-festival day which is a real feather in our cap and um, they're coming down to a rural track number one but a rural track that's not running as part of a festival so it's very important for us that the people that don't get to come out here on, on the faces they get to enjoy it on TV but also get to look at it and maybe look on with a little bit of envy and say God I wish it was there so my job is to make sure whatever you see on the cameras looks looks spectacular and, and the customers that are here on the day will be telling everybody about the great day they had. Absolutely. Well, best of luck to you, Eddie, and everybody in Gorham Park. Uh, that's Eddie Scally there in advance of Goff's Tiestes Place, which... Uh, 
Chase, which takes place next Thursday in Gorn Park. That's all we've got time for this week on The Bottom Line. We'll be back next Saturday just after nine. And don't forget, you can listen back to this episode or indeed any episode of The Bottom Line on our Casey Lore Bottom Line podcast available across a range of platforms. All you need to do is just search for The Bottom Line Casey Lore. Thanks to all my guests this week, Kel Gallivan, Mrs. Smart Money, Stephen Dargan, CEO of Wake Up and Eddie Scally, General Manager of Gorn Park. If you'd like to contact the programme, email thebottomline at kclaw96fm.com. Thanks to John Keane on sound editing and Deirdre Drummy who produced. Until we speak again, enjoy the weekend and have a good week. KCLR's Bottom Line. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie